The topic for this evening is Jacob Frank. Just by a show of hands, who's never heard of Jacob Frank? All right, so... I've heard of Bonnie Frank. I have my work cut out for me here. Okay. Jacob Frank is a false messiah. And I want to discuss the movement of Frankism, not just the man Jacob Frank, and to explain how what happened to the Frankists is totally at odds with the attitude of the rabbis and of conventional rabbinic Judaism towards people who are on the margins of Jewish life. That normally we would like people who are on the edge to be brought back, to be brought close. That they should once again see the light and become pious observers of the commandments. This is the one example where not just one person, but thousands of people were apostatizing, and the official Jewish community was happy about it. The attitude was, good riddance. Something that had never happened previously, and since then really has not happened. Okay. Who is Jacob Frank? He's born in 1726 in Podolia. And he lives most of his early life in the Ottoman Empire, not in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, because his uncle had been a purveyor of illicit Sabbatean literature. And so the family felt the need to cross uh, into Muslim territory and be away from the... uh, the censorship of Ashkenazic Jewry. Shabbatai Tzvi, who was a false messiah, who was born in 1626, dies in 1676, converts to Islam in 1666, uh, and had a tremendous following in his lifetime and after his lifetime, spawned a movement of Sabbatianism, Shabtaut, which believed in a wide range of bizarre theological points that are not in accord with traditional Judaism. Most importantly, at the practical level, a belief in the worthiness or the uh, virtue of violating the law, of violating the halakha. That redemption can be achieved through sin, and that sin is in fact no longer sin, but sin is a mitzvah including all sorts of weird acts that we would consider sacrilege, like eating on Yom Kippur, eating pork, uh, committing adultery, committing incest, uh, breaking the various fasts. And the study of Kabbalah was an important part of that cult. There were, after Shabtai, figures who claimed to be the reincarnation of him, his brother-in-law, Yaakov Karido, and then later, several people, most notably Baruch Yeruso, who died in 1720 and was leader of the Jews in Salonika. The most important Shabtai, uh, Sabbatian group was the Donme in Greece, which was a Judeo-Muslim sect, but there were also Judeo, uh, well, I should put it, Jewish groups within the Ashkenazic world that harbored Sabbatean beliefs but kept it quiet. They were crypto-Sabbateans in most of Western Europe, including in the rabbinate, including Rabbi Yonatan Abishitz. 
who was one of the most important rabbis of the 18th century, first, uh, well, eventually in Altona, in Hamburg. And in the Western European context, you couldn't get away with overt uh, professing of Sabbatean beliefs or a violation of basic Jewish norms because you'd get in trouble. And so, therefore, the attempts by the rabbis to stamp it out was half-hearted. Only a few rabbinic figures were heresy hunters, notably Moshe Chagiz and then Yaakov Emden. (coughs) But, for the most part, officialdom in Ashkenazic Jewry was happy enough to have vague charamim, vague bans of excommunication against the Sabbateans without naming names, and without really pursuing the, the matter with any great zeal. The one area where this did not hold true was in Podolia, a section of Poland that is close to the Ottoman Empire, and at one time in the late 17th and early 18th century was an independent province. And so the rabbis, the official rabbis of Poland and the Vadar Ba'artzot, the Council of the Four Lands, which governs Polish, Polish-Lithuanian <laughs> Jewry, did not have as tight a control over Podolian Jewry as they did over uh, the main geographic centers of, of, uh, of Poland. In this region, you could get away with a lot more than you could in, say, Prague or Vienna or Germany. And so Jacob Frank will emerge on the scene in 1755 trying to be the leader of the Podolian Sabbateans, becoming effectively the Mashiach, the Messiah, the reincarnation of Baruch Yeruso, who himself was the reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi. That's the plan, yeah. Okay, so you could, one, one good answer is always persecution, that life was miserable and they're looking for some sort of uh, mystical redemption that will save them from their troubles. But it's not just that. In significant part, the widespread availability of uh, mystical literature in the hands of people who were incapable of understanding it uh, led ordinary Jews to come to unconventional conclusions about theology and religious practice, which eventually will lead to bans on the study of mystical literature for people who are not in the rabbinic elite. Number one, age considerations, under 40 or under 30, you're not allowed to study these sorts of things, and certain books are considered uh, on the forbidden list, that they are heretical tracts, and even of the kosher ones, like the Zohar and the the older, uh, more canonical Kabbalistic writings, could only be studied in a certain environment, but not for the masses. But the unfortunate widespread availability of it to the unlettered led people to crazy conclusions. The printing press and also just the enthusiasm, which was a holdover from the days of Shabtai himself, meant that people were over, inordinately focused on the Kabbalah and not on uh, the Halakha. Okay. But the printing press was already 300 years old. So it wasn't the sudden. No, 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 it's not a, no, 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 definitely not. Okay. So, in 1755, Jacob Frank comes back to Podolia 
after uh, spending a significant time in the Ottoman Empire. He got married in 1752 to Khana, who was the daughter of Rabbi Levi Tova, who was one of the leaders of the Donmen. And on his wedding night, it was revealed to him the mysteries of, uh, of Shabta'ut, all the secrets that you really wanted to know that only the initiated could know. So on his wedding night, he was, uh, he was given, given that information, privy to that information. His rebbeim, who were communal rabbis, at least two of them were, uh, in Podolia, later becomes, become his disciples, that the, the, the student becomes the rebbe because he has these epiphanies where he is uh, spouting great wisdom, which is a, a common theme throughout the hundred years of Sabbatean history, where someone becomes a, 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 an overflowing fountain, a mayanamit gaber, of uh, mystical knowledge, even though they themselves were not especially learned. That somehow people who couldn't learn a Mishnah were uh, experts in the occult. Well, he have to be accepted by the so that will happen over the next four years. He bides his time, and he's very good at cultivating a following. Was it real teaching or fabrications? Fabrications. Fabrications. Yeah, it was smart, though. No, some say he wasn't very uh, smart, that intellectually he was a lightweight, but that he had great savvy as a charlatan. Was he a good so it's a machlokis. It depends who you ask. Because there are, the question was, was he a good speaker? And according to the Sabbatean accounts, yes, he was very charismatic and convincing. According to the anti-Sabbatean accounts uh, produced by Emden and, and others following Emden, they said that he was an ignorant boor and you could hardly make heads or tails of what he was saying because he couldn't speak any language co- uh, coherently, that he was neither here nor there. Which leads to an important point. The name Frank. What does Frank mean? French. Who are the Franks? The Franco-Germans, really. It means the Europeans, the, the, the Westerners. So when he was in Ottoman lands, he was a Frank, in that he was a European, he was an Ashkenazic Jew. But in Ashkenazic culture, Frank meant that you were Sephardic. So no matter where he was, he was the other. He had this uh, aura about him that he was never of this group, but he was always of the other group, which worked in his favor because it added an aura of mystery, an exotic flavor to his character, which he needed in becoming a false messiah. Excuse me, but Shabbat converted to, to Islam. Yes. So didn't that, you know, show, you know, test the authenticity of this uh, Okay, so the, the apostasy of Shabbat meant that if you were a, a good Jew part of any of the uh, communities of Europe, or for that matter of Southeastern Europe, the Sephardic communities, and you wanted to remain a good rabbinic Jew, after 1666 you could no longer be a a follower of Shabtai Tzvi, at least out in the open, but at the uh, subterranean level you could still be a believer in whatever mysteries of Shabtai you wanted to believe in, so long as you played the role of good devout devout Jew. Um, And many, many people fell into this category. What you? About, this, uh, about being a crypto-Islamist? Okay, so he was coerced into converting under uh, mortal threat. We're going to see Jacob Frank also converted to Islam, but he kept this a secret. He kept it a secret because later he'll convert to, to Catholicism, and he doesn't want to be seen as a serial converter. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering if some of these people 
sort of was the riffraff that fell through the cracks between those two um, legends, those, you know, those two... Well, the Vilna Gon is, is far away in Vilna. This is southern Poland, the Ukrainian regions that are bordering on uh, the, the, uh, the Turkish-Greek lands. We're very far away geographically from the Vilna Gon. And the interlocutors, the, the great Gedolim that are going to be part of this equation, are the German Gedolim, not those of, of Lithuania. Why that should be the case, it's an issue of uh, geography and politics. <coughs> and the Baal Shem Tov plays a limited to no role, because uh, Hasidut is brand new. Uh, Baal Shem Tov dies in 1760. All this is happening right around the same time. In the Baal Shem Tov's lifetime, he was not a big deal. He becomes a much bigger deal in the days of the Magad of Mezrich and the, the disciples in the next few decades. So that's not really part of the story. Um, in 1756, something really bad happens. At Lancorn, or Lancaroni, it depends upon which language you want to pronounce the town. Uh, this is a town in Podolia, and Frank is there with the rabbi of the town and the rabbi's wife and a few other people, and they have some sort of an incident in the home of the rabbi where the, the shades are drawn, nobody can see inside, and there's a lot of singing and, and commotion. But various people claim to have peeked through the cracks in the window and seen all sorts of sacrilege. A variety of sexual taboos were supposedly violated at this, uh, this episode. According to the better scholarship on the subject, what actually happened was that Frank who had a policy of turning everything that is spiritual into matters of the flesh, turned the rabbi's wife into a Sefer Torah. And what do you do to a Sefer Torah? You get an aliyah. You kiss it. Okay, you hold it, you touch it. So in, in a very uh, sexual way, the, the, the Rebetzin had become the Torah scroll. And this is a violation of uh, many, many uh, halachot, aside from basic propriety and decency. But no, 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 no. They put they put a crown on her, but the bigger problem is they put a cross on her. So now the 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 issue is syncretism, the syncretism between Sabbatean Judaism, crypto Sabbatean Judaism, and Christianity which is totally unacceptable to the rabbis. This is found out by the Christian authorities who expel the participants across the border. Frank leaves Poland, goes back to the Ottoman Empire, and um, now it is up to the authorities of Polish Jewry to figure out how, we, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the fact that Sabbateanism is no longer a benign um, heresy of a few people that they keep under wraps, but rather is a grotesque uh, observance of uh, bizarre sexual rights and co conflating Judaism with Christianity. Very, very dangerous moment. So, what the Jews do is turn to the Christian authorities, to the church, and ask the church to persecute and prosecute the Frankists. They're not yet called Frankists, but we'll use that term just con for convenience sake. They are Sabbateans of Podolia who are under the uh, uh, 
the sway of Jacob Frank at this point, although the term Frankist does not exist until a few decades later. So there are thousands of Sabbateans in Poland. Frank has only had an influence on a few of them at this point, but his influence will grow, as we shall see by the number of, of uh, Mishumadim within three years after the episode at Lancorn. Okay, so the Jews want the church to prosecute the offenders. What, what right does the church have to prosecute Jewish heretics? So the answer is they had every right to do so, because the law of the land was that the church authorities are responsible for all matters of heresy pertaining to lawful religions. And Judaism is a lawful religion. So, in fact, the church can engage in doctrinal matters that don't pertain to Christianity, that pertain to Judaism, and be the arbiters of what is kosher and what is treif. But can't you say it does pertain to Christianity? Well, that's what, the, what uh, Yaakov Emden and the, uh, Baruch Meretz Yavan, the Shtadlan, the uh, intercessor of the Jewish community, will eventually argue. But even if it didn't involve Christianity, it didn't involve crosses and syncretism, the argument was that heresy could be prosecuted by the church. It's the same thing that happened when they burned the Talmud in Paris. Okay, and the same outcome. The Talmud will be burned in 1757 in Poland. Okay, so... 1695 in France. Uh, well, in, tw- in, in, tw- in, twelve, in 1240. 1240. So, in, in August of 1756, the Frankists have a response. Their argument is, we are not heretics. We are not heretics. We are contra-Talmudists. That Judaism is a wonderful religion, the religion of the Bible, but it has been bastardized over time by the Talmud, and the rabbis are the expositors of Talmudic Judaism, and they have ruined an otherwise good faith, and we, the contra Talmudists, are, are the, the, the legitimate form of Judaism, and therefore in the eyes of the Polish-Lithuanian government, and in the eyes of the church, if Judaism is a lawful religion, we should be the or one of the lawful denominations within Judaism just as the Karaites were recognized as a lawful denomination within Judaism. And there's a lot of parallel between the contra-Talmudist Frankists and the Karaites, except that the Karaites were actually sincere believers in a pristine biblical religion, whereas the Sabbatean Frankists were a bunch of phonies looking for a way out of a problem. Yeah. I was visiting Lithuania one time, and I chanced upon this picturesque town, and they had Karaites. Where, in Troche? Well, Troki was their main town. And they, they were the Shomrim. They were imported from Palestine, Israel, and they were the Shomrim, the guards for the uh, palace. You know, the Karaites were the Karaites were an, were an important part. I mean, a very fringe minority, but an important part of, of Lithuanian Jewish life, and they existed even and until the Holocaust. Yeah. Okay, so. In, in 1756, when the Frankists present a platform to the church, this platform is uh, a real departure from conventional Jewish beliefs and is bringing them ever closer to Christianity. So I'll read to you the nine points of their platform which they wanted to set forth in a disputation with the rabbinic Jews. Number one, 
We believe in everything that was taught and commanded by God in the Old Testament. Does that sound pretty good? Sounds reasonable enough. Number two, the Holy Scriptures cannot be comprehended by human reason without assistance of divine grace. Does that sound okay? Reasonable enough. Number three, the Talmud is full of scandalous blasphemies against God and should be rejected. Uh, So that's obviously going to be out from the rabbinic point of view. Number four, there is one God who created everything. Sounds pretty good. Number five, the God is in three persons, indivisible as to their nature. So now already we see, here we're getting to to, to the Trinity, to Catholicism. That's in the Zohar also. Right, so it has a basis in the Zohar. But once we get to the next one, we're going to see that it's closer and closer to Christianity. Number six, God can take a human body upon himself and be subject to all passions except sin. All right. Seven, in accordance with the prophecies, the city of Jerusalem will not be rebuilt until the end of time. Eight, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament will not come again. So that means that there was a Messiah. Jesus. Well, but is it Jesus? Is it Shabtai Tzvi? Is it Baruch Yeruso? Is it Jacob Frank? Whoever it was already showed up on the scene. So now you can see how Sabbateanism is its own entity, but could easily be melded with Christianity if only you tried. And number nine, uh, God himself will remove uh, will, will remove the sin of the first parents. This God is the true Messiah incarnate. So now Messiah is not just a redeemer of people who himself is a person, but the Messiah is a divine being. All right. Yeah, but what about the fault with the sin? I mean, uh-huh. even if you're a Catholic, I mean, yeah. committing adultery and uh, having all these parties okay, and okay. stuff like that. So the, the, the um, incorrigible behaviors of the Frankists are going to make them... Um, we're gonna, are going to make them disreputable in the eyes of good Christians. And that's why Frank will end up going to jail for a long period of time. Uh, it's not as though the church was in favor of, of orgies and incest. It's just that the antinomian behavior of the Frankists is a good way to get rid of old line halakha, which then can lead a person to the baptismal font. But not that bad behavior should be condoned in any way. It's just that it's a, it's, it's an, a way of abolishing a, 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 a very uh, lewd and obscene form of abolishing the halakha. You had a question, yeah? No, I, so the Catholic Church like it because it's a bridge of getting to get to, con- to get conflict. Yes, yes, and that's going to be their intention all the way through. All right. So there is a disputation at Kamenitz in 1757, and the rabbis have to duke it out with the with the Frankists, who offered uh, a revised version of their platform, which we're not going to go into, but suffice it to say it was getting closer and closer to something that's acceptable to Christianity. In 1756, the Beitin and Brody and the Council of the Four Lands, realizing that much of this is uh, happening because of a rampant study of uh, mystical text, ab- abolished, or rather curtailed the study of the Kabbalah, as I said before in hoping that this could stamp out uh, heresy. But this was a last gasp attempt that really wasn't going to work. The bottom line is there are a significant number of people, thousands of people who are under the sway of uh, Shabtaut and Frank in particular. And this 1757 disputation is going to make or break the fate of Judaism in Poland, potentially. So the church wanted the Sabbateans to win insofar as they liked the Kabbalah. And they hate the Talmud. But the church was a little worried. 
that if the Sabbateans win, it might give the impression that the Kabbalah is the repository of all secret divine wisdom, whereas the Church believes, no, that the New Testament and the doctrines of Christianity are the repository of, of the great divine wisdom. That, yes, getting rid of the Talmud is a first step, and the Kabbalah is a nice thing, but you've got to make it all the way to, the, to, to, to Christianity and to the Church doctrine. So, Bishop Dembowski rules in favor of the Sabbateans in October, October 17th, 1757. And he rules that the leaders of the rabbinic camp should be flogged, and it uh, does tremendous uh, damage to the community in Lancorn, and the Talmud is to be burned all over Poland. Actually, not all over Poland, but specifically in the Kamenitz district, which was under his auspices. But it's a significant district, and they say 10,000 volumes of the Talmud were, were destroyed. It's a tremendous loss. Tremendous, tremendous loss. But, Good news. Dembowski died 20 days later. And this was seen by Polish Jewry as a victory on par with the death of Haman in Megillat Esther. That from uh, utter despair, now we have salvation. That the death of one man could make all the difference. Who succeeded? So it didn't matter who succeeded him. What mattered was who would take over the leadership of the, ch- of the broader Polish church. And on that issue, we're going to see very soon, uh, the fortunes can be reversed just as easily, in the bad direction. So on October 17th, all is doom and gloom. On November 9th, all is wonderful. But by July of the following year, all is doom and gloom again. Okay. Where is Jacob Frank in all of this? He's not around. He's in the borderlands trying to win over Sabbateans in, in uh, Podolia and Wallachia and uh, Volinia trying to convince them that he is the appropriate successor to Shabtai and to all the other uh, messiahs that had been in the hundred years in between. Um, after Dembowski's death, Frank is on the run because the, rab- the rabbinic Jews are with the upper hand. He can't even sleep in the same uh, hotel two nights in a row. He- he's running for his life. And his uh, leading lieutenants, Yehuda Leib Krisa, was the- his number one lieutenant and competitor, also was, was beaten within an inch of his life. So the rabbis are very happy at the end of 1757. Life is good. But Bishop Soltik, who was appointed to a leading position in the Polish church, was an anti-Semite. And he wants, he's involved with the blood libel for a decade or so before 1758. He has a plan. He's going to use the Frankists to show that the blood libel is true. And that there are Jews who say it's true. And who are Jews who use their own literature to prove that the blood libel is true. He whispered this in the ear of King Augustus III, and on July 11th, my birthday, 1758, he rescinds the orders against the Frankists and allows safe passage for Jacob Frank to move back into the kingdom of Poland. What happens next? In 1759, there is another disputation, and it happens at Lvov, or Lemberg, in Galicia. And this time, the Frankists have a new platform, which I'll read to you. New platform. Number one. All prophecies about the coming of the Messiah have already been fulfilled. That's sort of what we saw before. The Messiah is the true God, whose name is Aleph Dalid, followed by the Nun Yud. So they use the name of Hashem. He took human form and suffered for our redemption. 
Since the advent of the true Messiah, sacrifices and ceremonies have been abolished. Everyone should follow the teaching of the Messiah for salvation lies only within it. The cross is a sign of the Holy Trinity and the seal of the Messiah. A person can achieve faith in the King Messiah only through baptism. The Talmud teaches that Jews need Christian blood and whoever believes in the Talmud is bound to use it. Okay. So, this is basically saying that Christianity is the only way to go for, to achieve salvation and the blood libel is all true. So, what kinds of sources in the Ju- Judaic literature, rabbinic literature, did they point to to justify these claims? So, one of them... Huh? Ki Adam Okay, that's one. The other... From the, the halacha is mitzvah min hamuvchar b'yain adom that at the seder there is uh, a preference for red wine, but the best one of them all was detzach adash beachav. What is the meaning of detzach adash beachav? Anybody know? So that's what they usually mean. Dam But in the frankest point of view, it is dam srichim kulanu al derech shasu boto ish chachamim birushalayim. Wow. that we need the blood as was done to that man, meaning Jesus, by our sages in Jerusalem long ago. So, the Tzach Adash B'Achav, it's blood libel. Alright, yeah. Now, after, after the disputation, some Christians wanted all Jews expelled from Poland. I mean, this was a very dangerous time, because if Judaism was seen as, as uh, harboring these sorts of beliefs and, and commands to use a Christian blood for ritual purposes, <laughs> then the Jews are a danger and get them out of here. Oh, sure. There had been Jews in Poland for 600 years, and they had been firmly established all over the country. They were not 20%. They were probably about anywhere from 5 to 7%. Okay. America. America was still far, far away at that point. So what do the Polish Jewish leadership do about this? The blood libel is being espoused by leading bishops and by renegade Jews in disputation uh, with the Jewish leadership. So who do you turn to when you need help from the Goyim? Who's the chief Goy? The Pope. The Pope is the chief Goy. So they, so they send Baruch Meretz Yavan, the Shtadlan, the intercessor of the community, to the Vatican to get a papal bull saying that the blood libel is false. And fortunately, he was able to extract that from the Pope. And the Jews paid good money to have this uh, papal bull translated and widely disseminated in the hope that if you, know, you can't get more Catholic than the Pope, and if he says this is false, then it doesn't matter what some ignorant Polish bishop says on the basis of no good nick scoundrel Jews. Okay. Huh? No, 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 no. It was clear that the, uh, that the Vatican had issued a, uh, a writ against the, the de- determination of the Polish bishops. So, the Pope did it because of money? No, because the, the papacy had for a long time been skeptical of the blood libel. And you have to bear in mind that although as Jews we tend to look at the papacy with a jaundiced eye, from a, a, um, an honest perspective of a Catholic, they don't want to have, they don't want to perpetrate falsehoods. And if the blood, blood libel really is false, then why would the papacy be interested in uh, having it continue when all it does is accomplish the, inc- the inciting of mobs and the killing of people? I mean, the, the, uh, the, pa- the papacy was supposed to be a bulwark against 
the craziness of the lower clergy and of the masses. All right. It changed from the 12th century then. Yeah, of course. In the days of Urban II, the, the Pope was the leading figure of the Meshuggah masses. But by, by the 1700s, that's no longer the case. Who was the Pope at that time? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, so, the, um, by 1759, in 1757, the Stadlan, Baruch Meretz was urging the church to force the Sabbateans to make a choice. Either pick Judaism or pick Christianity. But you can't be a halfway house in between two religions. That there's a danger in allowing some syncretism and some alternative sect. You have to be this or that, and there's only pristine rabbinic Judaism and there's pristine Catholicism. You can't be in between. By 759, there's no longer any choice. Actually, what the leading Jews want is for the, the, the Frankists to convert out. They don't, they've gone too far to come back to Judaism. They've articulated too many points which are at odds with our beliefs. That they, they, there's, no, there's no coming back. But since there's no halfway house, the only solution is apostatize, become Christians. This is a radical departure from many, many centuries of Jewish policy, where if someone was a, a, a scoundrel, we would put them in cherem, but if they were even thinking about converting to Christianity, what would, the cherem, what, what would happen to the cherem? They would lift it. They would go easy on someone who was on the verge of abandoning the faith for another religion. <laughs> now we're saying, throw the book at them and kick them out altogether. They made, they made allegation that they Killed. Yes, yes. So, so they, they had done too many dangerous things to be brought back within the fold. And this is uh, articulated by the Stadlan in the following words. Ein manos lanu rak tachbulot What does that mean? We have no choice, no respite for ourselves other than to use chicanery, tachbulot, or various stratagems to get them, to force them, lahachricham, lehit natser, to become Christians. But so, if they, yeah. Sorry, if they would convert, I would think that Frank's influence would be dissipated because it would oh, be the Catholic Church. Oh, you, would, you would think that, but no. But no, we're going to see. That's not how the story played itself out. From a practical aspect, let's say uh, uh, one, one of these guys' daughter wanted to marry some Ashkenazi guy. Uh-huh. Would, would a rabbi marry them? Would, would, okay, so. All right. the, the, marriages between crypto Sabbatean Jews and regular rabbinic Jews happened all the time because they were crypto. Nobody knew. Uh, between overt Podolian Frankists or Sabbateans and a good rabbinic Jew, it probably wouldn't happen. But if it did happen, they were still Jewish until the moment that they had gone to the, to the baptism. So it might be an ex- a, a reason to be dissatisfied with the Shidduch, but a Jew is a Jew until we say otherwise. Okay. Um, Clement the Twelfth, yeah. Okay, so, why is it that the, the rabbis, and for that matter, the organized community changed their policy? Why were the Frankists any worse than some of the earlier uh, incarnations of Sabbateanism, or for that matter, just rotten Jews? The answer is twofold. Number one, the religious syncretism. But the other is really bad behavior that is so inexcusable as to give a, a black eye to the Jewish people that we are supposed to be seen as an orla goim, or at least uh, uh, practitioners of a religion of values, of, uh, of modesty. And if a person is, or a group of people is going to flout every norm, then it's not good for us to have them within our camp. Uh, 
Okay. As it turned out, Protestant missionaries had been trying to influence the Sabbateans for a few decades and had been sending representatives uh, across the border into Catholic Poland trying to uh, drum up support. Now, there were Protestant dissenters all over Poland, and they were a, per- they were a persecuted class. Uh, but the goal was to get the Jews too. It was a big blow to the Protestants when, in deciding to convert to Christianity, the Frankists picked Catholicism. The thinking was that they would pick a more uh, pristine, enlightened form of Christianity like one of the Protestant denominations and not go for the idolatrous Catholic Church. But as it turned out, Frank liked the idolatry of the Catholic Church. He liked the pomp and circumstance. He liked the idea, like uh, Pope Benedict, whom I had the pleasure of meeting, he used to go into the basement in the Vatican and take out the Santa Claus outfits and put on the shoes, the $1,000 shoes and the hats and the robes. He liked that, uh, the, the regalia and the, the, the ornate character of, of Catholicism. So did Frank. It played into his idea that he's a king messiah. Okay. Something he couldn't do if he was a Lutheran or a Calvinist. All right. um, well, you're right, but he didn't know from Anglicanism. That's, that's already on the other side of the pond. Um, in 1759, Frank con- converts, and so do his people. How many? It's a big question. At least 700 in that first year alone, probably about 3,000 over the span of five years between 1759 and 1763. <laughs> this is a tremendous number, given that there aren't that many Jews in, you know, in the world or in Poland altogether. So 3,000 people, it's a tr- tremendous, tremendous number. Um, they became local celebrities in Warsaw, where he was uh, living, at least for a little while, in 59 and 60. But wasn't, it wasn't to end well for Frank. He was accused of various sins by uh, several of the neophyte uh, converts to uh, Christianity, some of his compatriots, who were sincere converts to Christianity, to Catholicism, and thought that Frank was a phony because he was still engaging in lustful behaviors and all sorts of other averus. So they ratted on him to the authorities, and he was arrested. And he would then spend the next 13 years in confinement between 1760 and 1773, um, he was sent to Czestochowa, which is considerably farther to the east of Warsaw, out of the way of Sabbatean influence, basically to the middle of nowhere from, a, from his point of view. And this was the church, yes. This is the church in conjunction with the civil authorities sent him to Czestochowa to a fortress, which was also a cloister, which happened to have uh, a relic of some importance in Catholicism, the Black Madonna, which was a painting that was supposedly painted on uh, the table, a uh, piece of wood that was part of the table from the Last Supper. Now, if you believe that, you can believe anything, but uh, they believe these sorts of things. It's a very big relic, and thousands and thousands of pilgrims would go every year to Czestochowa, to this place where Frank was holed up as a, basically a hostage of the Polish state. Okay. Um, one of the things that Frank wanted and negotiated with the Polish authorities was for an, ind- or an autonomous territory where he and his followers could live, and he'd be the governor. Uh, and he wanted it in the, in the unsettled or unpopul- underpopulated regions of southeastern Poland uh, near the Turkish border. What is the uh, benefit to the Polish state from this plan, if it were ever to be implemented? 
Frank claimed he could get many, many thousands of former Jews who then converted to Catholicism to join him in this region and build up a new province in the Polish kingdom, which is an enticing idea from a political point of view. But ultimately it was rejected. Why? Frank was seen as unreliable. There were some concerns that maybe he was a, uh, an Ottoman agent, that he was a Turkish agent, a spy, and that his uh, loyalty to the Polish state was dubious, and for that matter his loyalty to Christianity was dubious because it emerged that he had converted to, to Islam earlier in life. That he had kept that quiet, but yes, in the early 1750s he had converted to Islam. Huh? Why did he convert to Islam? Uh, it was convenient for business purposes when he was a merchant who was traveling... Uh, in Turkey, uh, and it was it was easier to be that than a Sabbatean Jew, um, but it wasn't much of a of a concession on his part because it was a pro forma conversion. And he never really was sincere about anything in his life, let alone Islam. So, the later scholars view this proposal by Frank as a very interesting one, in that it smacks of Jewish territorialism, the likes of which we would see later in 1903 to 1906 with the Uganda Plan and with the Jewish territorialists in Israel Zangwill, which is an alternative to Zionism. So what is Frank suggesting? That we don't need to go back to Israel, and there's no more Jerusalem. That Poland is the new Jerusalem. Poland is the new Israel. Can you believe that? You think you've heard of Berlin as the new Jerusalem, that it was the Maskilim had that approach, but the Frankists had the approach of uh, Poland is the great place. It is Eretz Edom. And why should you go to Eretz Edom? Because what does Yaakov Avinu say to his brother when uh, Esav suggests that they travel together to Har Seir? He says, I'll follow you. So what is this happening now? We're following the, the right path. We're finally getting to Seir, to Eretz Edom, and that is Poland. Very bizarre, but to them it made sense. Um... Who's following Frank? Who's converting out? That's a big question. It's hard for us to know, but the suggestion in the, among the scholars is that poor Jews who had nothing to lose but their chains thought that this was a good idea. Whether they were believing Sabbateans before Frank or not, the point is that a lot of Jews are converting to Catholicism and it's a, a path to, towards upward mobility. And it certainly was. Um, because there was a law in the books ever since 1588 that if a Jew converted to Catholicism in Poland, they were entitled to uh, uh, the status of nobility. And this will play into the hands of Frank as he, cl as he claims that he is Count von Frank and not just the Jew, Jakob Leibowitz, which he was born. Yeah. So, in his idea that, that Poland is Edom and is the new promised land, uh, he has some gematrias. He says, Tzafon, the north, and the gematria of Poland Lita is the same as Tzafon. So those are the various uh, cute little methods to prove his point. Now, while he was in captivity in Czestochowa, he was without his wife, which is no good, because as a lecherous man, he needs to have access to some sexual gratification. Why not? He's a wonderful husband. Who knows? Uh, the Frankists had a, had a very, had a very uh, accurate, uh, detailed chronicle. And it, it is recorded that on September 8, 1762, Hannah, the wife, re-emerged at Czestochowa and sexual congress was resumed. 
this is the only uh, religion I've ever heard of where they know when their leader began uh, fornicating again with his wife. I don't know, but, but that was the importance of it to the Frankists. This was a very big deal to them. Yeah. They did. And we're going to see that the daughter becomes the Mashiach. Okay. So, uh, the daughter, her name was Rachel. That was her Jewish name. She was born in 1754. And upon conversion, her name becomes Sophia, or Eve, as she was known. Eve. And Eve Frank emerges at Czestochowa in 1770 at the age of 15. And it is said about her that she was the most beautiful girl in all of Poland. And that she used it to her advantage. Um, to make herself, uh, to develop for herself a cult of the personality. She became the Messiah. That if Frank was somehow a reincarnation of Shabtai Tzvi and the Divine, that the daughter was the Messiah. Frank did something that was a dangerous political gambit in the late 1760s. He saw that Poland was not long for this earth. The, the, the kingdom of Poland is on the decline, and the successor states are the great kingdoms of Prussia, Austria, and Russia. And living in Czestochowa, he sees that the Russians are on the frontier. He makes a, a bid to secure Russian cooperation with his messianic or re- religious sect by proposing that if he converts to Eastern Orthodoxy, he'll convert 20,000 Jews with him uh, uh, in exchange for his freedom. So the serial converter who went from being Jewish to being uh, a Muslim to being a Sabbatean uh, uh, false messiah to being a Catholic is now proposing to become an Eastern Orthodox. But it failed. Uh, The whole thing fizzled out. The problem for him was that some of his followers who were sincere converts to Catholicism didn't take kindly to the idea of jumping from one religion to another every five minutes. And so he lost uh, support from a certain sector of his, um, of his, of his following. Um, the Stadlan, Baruch Meretz Yavan, the leader of Polish Jewry, went to Moscow to try to counteract Frank's uh, emissaries. And basically what Baruch told uh, the Tsar is that you can't rely upon this guy Frank. He's one of these false Messiah charlatan guys and he'll convert from one religion to the next every five seconds and he's not really supportive of Russia. He just wants his freedom from captivity and where does his real loyalty lie? With the Ottomans who are the enemies of the Russians. And Baruch's mission to Moscow was successful and it it crushed any attempt at uh, um, a a shift of allegiance to Eastern Orthodoxy on the part of the Frankists. But... Politicians are politicians. They listen to who makes the most political sense. And Baruch was a very savvy operator. But when the Russians did conquer that portion of Poland in 1772 and annexed it in the partitions, they did release Frank from captivity. In 1773, he was free to go. But where is he going to go? The answer is, he's going to go to the Habsburg Empire, to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because his daughter needs to learn the ways of royalty. She needs to learn the, the European languages and cultivate a, a, a noble character. Because after all, she is the Messiah. She is the king or the queen. He has two sons and a daughter. The two sons are kind of irrelevant. They, they emerge after Frank's death uh, you know, in terms of keeping up the family business and raising funds to support their opulent lifestyle. But they never really were important. The daughter was the main figure. Okay. So... He goes to live in Brun or Brno in Moravia, 
Why there? He's got Mishpacha there, the Dabrowski family, the Dabrushka family. And uh, while there, he behaves like a good Catholic. He goes to church every day, he even tries to convert some local Jewish families to Catholicism. He's living the life of a good Catholic. But he likes to be important politically. And so he cultivates ties to Maria Theresa and Joseph II. And he even has audiences with the Empress and, and, with, the, and with the King. He, he is Polish nobility because he legitimately was a Polish noble, having converted, and under the law, he was entitled to, a, to status. Uh, his wife died in 1772, just before he went to, to, uh, to Brunn. And when his wife died, he continued his lecherous ways by having uh, a ceremony a month after her, her death, after the Shloshim, in which he did lewd things with two women uh, in public. I'm not going to say what those things were, but it was r- r- grotesque. Please give us, give us your sources. Uh, the source is the Frankest Chronicle. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, I got reading. If, no, if you want to read, read Mayor, Mayor Balaban's two-volume history of the Frankism is the most important work on Frankism. But the other good work is, is this work, The Mixed Multitude, uh, by a professor from Hebrew U, which came out two years ago, and deals not just with Frank himself, but with the broader movement. And you'll get all the gory details. Okay. I don't believe so. I think he knew exactly what he was, do- he was doing, and he was uh, a man out for his own aggrandizement and the joys of life, uh, more so than anything else. Okay. So, in Moravia... The, the Sabbateans were outwardly Jewish. They were not, like in Podolia, converts to Christianity. But bear in mind that this is now the 1770s, 1780s, and we're getting towards the era of Enlightenment, and Jews are assimilating. So the Sabbateans of early 1700s uh, Central Europe are giving way towards not especially religious children and grandchildren. While the generation of Frank in Moravia was not ready to convert to another religion, their children were. Not so much out of a desire to be some sort of weird cryptic sect, but just because as a matter of social mobility, it was good to convert to Christianity. Well, as we, next week when we discuss Moses Mendelssohn and the fate of his children, all right, this is just a basic uh, secular approach towards life that I want to advance, and if I have to advance through... Uh, accepting, uh, at least in a pro forma way, the, uh, the ceremonies of another religion, I'll do it, just to advance my cause. All right. Frank was uh, a charlatan, but he wasn't the only one. Wolf Ibschitz, the son of Rabbi Yonason Ibschitz, was a competitor of Frank. And he tried to um, create for himself a following and was unsuccessful in creating a Sabbatean following. But what he did do was create for himself an aura of nobility, but it was fake nobility. Oh, sure, yeah. Now, he never actually converted to Christianity, but he became a false Christian, meaning he pretended he was Christian, and he pretended he was a noble, and he ran... During and after. But his father died in 1764. He was already, by the late 1750s, racking up debt all over town, living a high life, living as like a, effectively like a playboy, uh, having a good time, and interacting with sectarians and Christians. Um, 
so the, he so uh, Ibushitz was the competitor of Frank, but Frank really won the battle for uh, the hearts and minds of uh, of, this, of the Central European Sabbateans. In eight, in seventeen eighty six, Frank had a falling out with Joseph II, and had to leave the Habsburg Empire. Where does he go? He went to Offenbach uh, in Germany, and he lives in a, an abandoned castle that was provided for him uh, by some of his Christian handlers. He referred to it as God's house, and he set up court. It was a weird place. Frank was an alchemist. He, in his castle, there were laboratories to try to produce gold, and he, and he passed off uh, fake materials, uh, copper as gold, in a way of you know, making more money. He had an aura of mystery about him. Nobody was allowed into the castle without permission and only could see certain rooms. Other rooms were off-limits. Uh, he had armed guards everywhere and he had a, a group of fighters, of warriors. So where does he get all the money from? That's the question. He has supporters, Frankists. They say there were 24,000 Frankists all over, the, all over Europe. Most of them were in Warsaw or in Prague or some in Offenbach. And the, especially the crowd in Warsaw, and also in Chestachova, sent him money. They sent the pidyonim, you know, they sent, uh, like he would to a Rebbe, money to support his lifestyle. He had a golden carriage with six horses, which is reserved for royalty. He lived it up. And this was his life for the last five years of his existence, the Offenbach Castle. He had a heart attack in 1788, uh, 1790, and then he died of a third heart attack in 1791. After his death, his daughter and sons kept up the family business. But their high lifestyle was getting too expensive. And they didn't have the kind of uh, charisma that the father did. Eve Frank, the daughter did have the cult of the personality going for her. And yes, people would go on pilgrimage to see her and to kiss her hand. But when you believe weird things, you can believe that a woman is the Messiah. Right. So, now, she was a nasty woman. But she had a kind side to her. She, she gave a lot of tzedakah, a lot of philanthropy to the churches in Offenbach and to the poor in Offenbach. So she did some, some mitzvot, some kind deeds to the, 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 the local poor and to the local religious establishments, not, not Jewish, of course. But she also was this nasty spinster who was demanding the gold and silver and valuables of her Frankist followers. And it, there reaches a point in time where the followers have had enough and they no longer believe in the charade and they just don't send any more money. She dies uh, penniless, but having maintained her opulent lifestyle to the very end by bamboozling people into giving her, to loaning her more and more money. She was so uh, indebted at the end that there was litigation uh, pending the, the, on the day of her death. She owed uh, 800,000 guldens. I don't know how much that translates into dollars, but that's a lot of money that she owed because the, the pidyonim, the, the donations, had dried up. And she was just living on borrowed time. She, she claimed to be nobility, but not just that her father was some Jewish convert to Christianity in 1759 who was accorded a title of Polish nobility, but rather that she really was a noblewoman. In Offenbach, from 1786 and onward, 
the local population didn't know the true story of Jacob Frank. They didn't know that he was a Jewish false messiah from the, south, the southern regions of Poland who had converted to various religions and was a phony. They thought... Actually, they didn't know what to think. All sorts of theories came about. One was that Eve was actually the sister of the Tsarina and that Jacob Frank was not her father, but rather was appointed as her custodian by the Romanovs who had sent this bastard child of the family off to live in, in, uh, in Germany. And that her real name was Eve Romanova. And she used to sign her name, Eve Romanova, later in life, and her, her cufflinks had E-R. Uh, that was her, uh, her initials. So they they cultivated for themselves these false narratives, these stories about where they came from that were totally bogus, but they were necessary to maintain their importance. What, what happens later on? The last years of Frankism. So Frankism continued to exist in some form or another throughout the 19th century. Even in the 1880s, it still existed. But it no longer was a religious sect. These were people who were Catholics through and through, but who still banded together as a social group, a cohesive social group who tended to marry amongst themselves and dominate certain occupations in Poland, much to the chagrin and dismay of the Polish burger population, because the Jews here were all the notaries and all the lawyers. They were all ex-Jews. They were Frankists who were passing as Christians. Now, they weren't passing as Christians. They really were Catholic, but they were descended from Frankists. By the way, uh, Louis Brandeis was a descendant of Frankists. Yes, yes. And other very important people in Polish history who would have preferred not to have anyone know that they had Jewish ancestry also were from a Frankist element. Um, So it was was a a social club more than anything else by the mid to late 1800s. and the claim that someone had descended from the Frankists was still thrown around as late as the 1930s as an epithet. If you wanted to be nasty to someone in Polish society, you say, oh, they were a Frank, their granddaddy was a Frankist. Okay. Um, were these yeah. descendants of the Frankists around at the time of Hitler? Oh, sure. Were they just as well targeted as the Jews were? No, no, because uh, this was, you know, from 150 years earlier, and racially they were regarded as uh, full-fledged Christians, not Jews. It was the biggest conver- mass conversion of Jews to Christianity uh, if you exclude... 1492 in Spain. Uh, this was of voluntary conversions um, of a religious nature. It was. There were probably more converts to Christianity of the various denominations in Berlin and in northern Germany in the era of the Maskilim, but that was for the most part uh, social advancement. It wasn't part of some religious sect that actually had beliefs. This was the only example of a significant number of people out of some conviction, not necessarily pristine Catholicism, but some conviction are entering the, the Catholic Church. Okay, w- w- one last point for tonight. The, uh, the Frankists, by the end of uh, the life of Frank in the last quarter century of the, of the, eight, of the uh, 1700s, had gone from being a Jewish sect to a subset of Christianity to a secret society akin to the Freemasons and the Order of Asiatic Brethren. 
the order, order of Asiatic Brethren was established by Jews and ex-Jews as a way of having a fraternal order that dis- disregarded a confession, disregarded you know, former religious affiliation in which people could get together in a, a, a neutral or at least semi-neutral society. But as was, would typically happen, Gentiles, real goyim, didn't join these groups. These were uh, uh, dominated by ex-Jews who still were cohesive socially and did not want to spread their wings into real Goyish society. So they weren't Jewish, but they also really weren't Christian, even if they might have been officially Christian. They were some halfway house socially, uh, and Frankism represented one example of that. The, the Freemasons were supposed to be open to, Jew, to, uh, to Jews, but sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. And that's why Jews had these, uh, the, or ex-Jews had these other alternatives. So the idea of a secret society, that benefited the Frank family. The notion that there's something untold or unspoken, there's something uh, secretive about the true status of Frank, or for that matter his daughter, served them in good stead. Because if everybody knew that he was just a, a, a Polish, a Podolian Jew uh, of no great talent, uh, with nothing really uh, to offer other than alchemy and, and fraud, would he be so successful? No. The secret, the sowed, plays an important role in preserving their relevance. Okay. Now, with this we'll stop. Um,